Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Father, we ask and pray that you may speak to us today. Because we need your voice, we need your guidance, and we need your instruction. Father, we know that your spirit is in this place because we have experienced your moving. We wouldn't be here other than you had called us to be here. So, Father, I ask and pray that the baggage that we have brought to this place, Lord, that we may leave it at the door and that we may experience your goodness, that we may experience your loving kindness, and that we may experience your graciousness today, that we may just experience who you are. Father, may you speak to me in spite of myself. Is the prayer I plead in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing that I've, I've actually learned... Um, and the thing that I've learned is that compromise isn't always a bad thing. And some of you are just like, what is he going to be preaching about today? Compromise isn't always a bad thing. I mean, I've learned that you don't always have to leave the toilet seat up. And I've learned a few other things. When you go and spend time with the in-laws, it's all right to play board games. Now, for those that know me, I'm not a board game guy. You know, especially when it's Trivia Pursuit or something like that. It's, it's ter- or Monopoly. I'm not that type of guy. But there's times to make concessions and there's times to compromise. I've learned that compromising isn't always a bad thing. However, when you're compromising principle or truth, that's when it's not right to compromise. And when that's the case, compromise is simply changing the question to fit the answer. You're doing what you want to do so you can do really what you want to do at the end. And I remember when I was in high school, I made the stance in my own life that I wasn't going to go out and I wasn't going to party. And I went to a public school and I remember when my mates would get back from uh, their weekends, they had blinders or whatever they used to call it, and I could never really participate in the conversations that they were having. They had went out and they had met this person. They'd hooked up with this person. They had this fun. They did this, etc., etc. And I could never relate to their experience and I could never join in their conversation. And I always swore to myself that I wouldn't do that. Until my friends who pestered me and pestered me and pestered me and eventually the, 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 the rocky outcrop on the seashore, it gradually gets worn away. I conceded and I said, I will go, but I will not drink. And I went there and I was sitting, I remember, around the fire and everyone was, you know, inebriated and having fun, or they thought. And I remember just looking around and like thinking, this is so stupid. That's what I was thinking. And I remember thinking in my mind, you know, how can I reach these people, a 17-year-old? How can I reach these people, my peers of mine, who are doing these things? How can I show them that you can have fun without drinking? And I remember that there was a dance hall right where we were doing it. And I went in there and I started dancing. Now, they thought that I was good, but I knew that they were just drunk. And I remember that this was a small stepping stone for me because I started to think in my mind that I can go to parties and not drink and just have fun. You can see what's going to happen here. And I'll go to another party, another party. And eventually I was doing what everyone else was doing. See, a compromise is a gradual progression down a path where you get to a point in your life where you look back and think, I never thought that I would do that. See, I compromised principle and it led me to where I was. 
Today's message as we go through the churches in Revelation, we've looked at the church in Ephesus, we've looked at the church in Smyrna, and what we're seeing is we're seeing that they are snapshots of church history from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection all the way through to where we are today. What we looked at a couple of weeks ago is the church at Ephesus, which is the loveless church. It was a church which was so earnest and zealous in its activity for God, but in the process of their activity for God, they somehow left God behind. And the reality of that is this, how often do we do just the same? And then we looked at the church of Smyrna, which is looking at the church that came after the church at Ephesus. It's probably looking at around... Um, let me get my times right, 100 to 300 AD, roughly that. And this is a church that was heavily persecuted when Christianity was illegal. And those who profess Christianity were intensely persecuted. Today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the next two churches, which is Pergamos and Thyatira. And up on the screen here, you can see all these churches. So we looked at the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna. Today, we're looking at Pergamos and Thyatria. And what we're going to find is we're going to find that these two churches, they go hand in hand together. They're very, very similar in the sense that one leads the other. One makes the pathway available for the other. What Pergamos does, the history in church history, it leads the way for the corruption that we find in Thyatira. I invite you to open with me to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. Now, may I remind you as we're reading these texts here that these words are the words in red. In other words, it's Jesus' words. Jesus has spoken them himself. This is just as much gospel as the gospel of John or the gospel of Matthew or Mark or even Luke. So Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, the scriptures read this. And I'm going to read through to verse 15. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. So Jesus is speaking these words just here. And before we jump into it and look into the text, the question I want to ask you is this. In verse 12, who is Jesus coming as? Who is Jesus coming as? Is he coming as a lamb to them? No, he's coming as one who possesses a two-edged sword. A two-edged sword. Now, is this talking about some military sword, or is this talking about something even more powerful? What is more powerful for God? Is it his arm or is it his word? It's his word. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, For the word of God is quick and it is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts 
and the intents of the heart. Jesus is coming to this church because this church has compromised truth. And what is he coming as? He is coming to them as one who is truth. When you look at a bit of history and you see Pergamos, you see Pergamos was an ancient city in, the, um, in Asia Minor. And it was a high city. It was elevated. And in the high places in Pergamos, there was a temple, and the temple was dedicated to Zeus. Has anyone heard of Zeus before? Yeah, and the pantheon of Greek gods. There was, it, was a, it was a very polyistic society. And Zeus was one of these gods, and one of these gods in which they worshipped. And basically, the message that God is giving to his people at this time in Earth's history, and you can see the time period here, 300 to 500 AD, it's this. Hey, guys, I know where you dwell. I know the persecution that you're experiencing. I know the corruption that you're experiencing. I know the compromising that you are giving. And I'm coming to you who is one who is faithful and one who has had the word of God. Now, what happened in church history in this time is a man by the name of Constantine. Has anyone heard of Constantine? Okay, he was a Roman emperor. And what he basically did was this. It was illegal to profess Christianity previously, for the previous 300 years. And he comes along a Roman emperor who says, you know what, I'm going to convert to Christianity. It was more of a political move than anything else. Now, the intensity of this, you just got to understand how crazy this is. It's like waking up in the morning and, I don't know, if you read the newspaper or you go on your phone or your laptop and looking at the news and reading as a headline, President of Saudi Arabia becomes Christian. It's pretty intense, isn't it? I mean, the Roman Empire was the largest empire that the world had ever experienced. And the leader of all of that professes Christianity. A religion which was previously illegal now becomes the official religion of the state. It's insane. And because of this, Christianity becomes popularized. And because it becomes popularized, it becomes watered down. The church begins to compromise. And you just imagine this. If you were going to worship God, you would go into this little room, make sure no one was watching, and you would sing praises to Jesus or study the scriptures. At the pain of death. And then the Roman emperor comes out and says, you know what, I'm a Christian, we're all going to be Christians. Hey, pagan temples, let's make them Christian centers of worship. So the Christians now go in and they reclaim the pagan temples. You just imagine it. They're in their little homes, hiding for fear of death, and now they're in these beautiful, ornate marble and stone buildings, and they're looking around, they're going, wow, this is pretty awesome. And do you know what the Christian church began to think? We've reached the millennium. Augustine, one of the church fathers, he started to teach that the millennium was upon the church, that we were now reigning on earth with Christ. Pretty serious stuff. And because of this, the church started to drift and drift and drift because it began to compromise. The church at Pergamos gave itself to spiritual compromising. And when you compromise yourself spiritually, what happens to your relationship with God? It goes down the tube. You water it down, you have no vital, powerful godliness, and you have nothing to give. If you've compromised with Jesus, you can't share with others what you don't have yourself. 
And when Jesus talks to the church at Pergamos, he likens them to two stories. The first one is the story of Balaam, and the second one is the story of a man by the name of Nicholas, which was a proselyte who founded the Nicolaitans. The Old Testament one first we're going to look at first, which is Balaam. And I'm just briefly going to run through this story of Balaam. Now, the children of Israel, they're about to enter the promised land. And as they're about to enter the promised land, there is a king who dwelt in Cana who was looking at the children of Israel along the plain. And they saw, he saw the vastness of their number. He saw the might of their hand as they had conquered nations up to that point. He had heard the stories of how they had been delivered from the most powerful nation on earth, the Egyptians. And he'd heard the stories about the Red Sea opening up and then walking through on dry land to where they were today. He had heard powerful, powerful stories. Do you think it made him afraid? He was terrified. So he calls for the, a man who was a prophet of God, and his name was Balaam. And he pays Balaam an exorbitant amount of money to come to where he is and pronounce a curse on the children of Israel. Balaam essentially says no, but then he's worn away and he says yes. He goes to visit the king, Balak, and he's standing on one of the high places overlooking the children of Israel on the plain, and the king says, curse them, curse them. And he goes to curse them, but can he curse them? No, he actually pronounces blessings instead. Now, he's taken the money from the king. How do you think the king's going to feel? When he gives blessings instead of cursings, he's not going to be happy. So the king says, take, I'll take you to another spot. But he overlooks the crowd. He says, curse them, curse them. But he blesses them again. Thirdly and lastly, he takes it to the last spot and he says, curse them. But he blesses them again. He can't curse what God has blessed. And he can't bless what God has cursed. And the children of Israel, they were untouchable by the hand of Satan while God's hand was on them. Does anyone know what happened next in the story? Balaam encourages them to do something else. Turn with me to the book of Numbers, keeping your finger in Revelation. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. Israel could not be cursed while they were faithful to God, while they hadn't compromised themselves. But here's another strategy. Here's another angle. And Balaam knows this. In chapter 25, verses 1 to 3, the scripture reads this. Now Israel remained in the Acacia Grove with the pe- and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Now, this is the thing. They couldn't be cursed when they were faithful. But here's a compromise that comes into the camp, and they corrupt themselves, and then the curse falls on them. Now, Balaam runs off with the money, and look at what it says here. In Second Peter, this is what it says about Balaam. He says, they had forsaken the right way and gone astray. This is talking about apostates, people who commit apostasy. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of what? 
Would you say that Balaam could be bought or sold? If the price was high enough, could he be bought to do whatever you asked of him? You could. Balaam was the man that could be bought and sold for the opinions of men, for the want of money. He would rather money than faithfulness to God. And the church at Pergamos was exactly the same. They walk into their temples and it's beautiful and it's ornate and they're thinking, we've got it pretty good together. And because of their financial security, because they are the, the, the church of the empire or the state, they thought that they were pretty good. But they were just as he who loved the wages of unrighteousness. There's been a story that's been floating around Facebook lately. It's a story of a Jewish man and his name is Kivi, Kivi Bernhard. Has anyone heard of this story? It's an awesome little video. I encourage you to go on YouTube and watch it. What it is is this. Some people are, are smiling. Leonard, have you seen it? No. Oh, yeah. And what the story is, he's written his book and it's gone international. It's one of the best sellers. And he's a very prominent, well-known name. And what happened is Microsoft was having a special uh, company launch or whatever it was, a special meeting. And they asked him to be the keynote speaker. They sent him an email and said, do you want to be the keynote speaker for Microsoft? Now, just to let you know, Microsoft is a big deal. I mean, if you get an email from Microsoft saying, you want to be the keynote speaker at our event, you'll probably think it's either spam or someone's having a joke with you. And the thing with, with Kivi is he realized, as he read through the email, that Although he would love to speak and present, there posed a problem for him because he was a Jewish man. And the conference was on the very day that he kept his Shabbat, or Sabbath, Saturday. So he replies to them and says, I would love to attend, however, Saturday is my rest day and I do no work. So guess who calls him? It's not Bill Gates yet. A CEO calls him and says, how much money do you want? We can double it, triple it, whatever you want. You know, surely we can fix this. We, we can make this work. And do you know what he says to him? It's not a matter of money. It's a matter of principle. So then a higher-up CEO calls him. Says, how can we make this work? You want a car? You know, you want a, an unlimited credit card? What do you want? He says, it's not a matter of money. It's a matter of principle. And eventually he holds out and he holds out and holds out and they change the day to the next day to the Sunday. And it's very, very interesting as he's sitting with Bill Gates and the CEO for the company in the back room after, the, the, after his address, and the CEO is saying, man, this guy gave us a lot of trouble. We, we offered it. We threw money at his feet, and he would not take it. And do you know what Bill Gates says? He says this. That's what happens when you have something that money can't buy. That's what you have. That's what happens when you have something that money can't buy. Church family, this morning, let me put this out to you. The one thing that the church has a monopoly on, Jesus Christ himself, we can't go giving away. We can't go surrendering up. The world can't give what we have. So why would we let it go? And I'm not talking about saying, okay, we're just going to keep it to ourselves. But what I'm saying is, why would we hide it in the corner and not let our light so shine? Why would we compromise ourselves 
for the expense of others when the world is dying out there and they need to know Jesus. We should be people who cannot be bought and cannot be sold. The one thing that the church in Pergamos, the one thing that the church in Pergamos had a monopoly on in the world was the one thing they had sold. And compromise will always lead to corruption. God always takes an issue with error because God is truth. I am the way, I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. An attack on truth is an attack on he who is the truth. And sadly, this church, in compromising, had attacked attacked the truth of God's word. No wonder they lost their power. And look at what Jesus says just here. Jump back to Revelation chapter 2. Well, actually, before we jump back to Revelation chapter 2, I've just shared with you Balaam. I didn't even get to look at the, the Nicolaitans, did I? Um, the Nicolaitans, I'll show you. Look at this verse up on the screen. It's in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. This is the New Testament example. Now, the church was growing so much that the apostles had so much to do with so little time, and they couldn't devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. So they elected deacons. The question is, what do deacons do? Well, they don't just do deaking, whatever that is. They're servants. Okay? The deacons were servants. And look at this. It says, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicol, I pronounced that wrong, Timon, Paramenius, I should have practiced these earlier, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. A proselyte is a convert. He was a convert to the Jewish faith. Not the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, sorry. And he was a deacon in the early church. But what so often happens, who you are at the end isn't who you are at the beginning. And along the way, as you begin to compromise, things start to slide a little bit. And the thing with apostasy, particularly when you read the New Testament, has some strong language against it. And it talks about those who love followings of people above the truth of God. So here we have the example of Balaam who corrupted himself, who compromised for money. And on the other hand, Nicholas who compromised himself because of a want of men's applause. And this is what the church had done. It wanted to look good in the eyes of the state. It wanted to look good in the eyes of the the world with the material possessions that it possessed. But those things sold the vital godliness that the church had and the only thing that the church can give. And it's no different today. So the question is this. Does God have promises to get you out of any mess? Yes or no? Does God have promises to get the church out of this mess? Does God have promises to get you out of a state of spiritual compromise? Absolutely. Look at what Jesus says next in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. He says, Repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. What is the whole um, instruction that God is giving to the church of Pergamos? Well, it makes sense to me when you look at the completeness of it. I'll come back to that afterwards. He's calling them to repent. Repent from what? 
He's calling them to repent from the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Obviously, it's a doctrinal issue. And that makes sense with his instruction because he says he's coming with a sharp two-edged sword twice. They had corrupted themselves and compromised by turning aside from Scripture. And whenever you turn aside from Scripture, you are always compromising, a compromise that will lead to death. As we compare Balaam and Pergamos, look at what we see just here. This is remarkable. Balaam was once true to God. The church in Pergamos was once true to God. Balaam was overcome with covetousness. Pergamos was overcome with covetousness. Balaam was united with Balak, the king, the state. Pergamos was united with Rome, the state. Balaam was warned by an angel. In Pergamos, you read that they were warned by Antipas, the faithful martyr. Balaam commit, um, encouraged the children of Israel, put in things in place, gave the advice that they would commit spiritual immorality. The church at Pergamos was committing sexual immorality in the sense that it was turning aside from their one love, Jesus. Balaam experienced a death with the sword. Those who are unfaithful experience a death with the sword, which is the word of God in Pergamos. How remarkable is that? And the thing is, when you look through the book of Revelation, you see that it's littered with gems from the Old Testament all the way through. So the promise that God gives to the church of Pergamos is this. He promises to give them truth and a new beginning. The truth which has been hidden, the false doctrine which has been promoted, is now replaced with the hidden manna from the Ark of the Covenant, which does not grow old which does not decompose, but is true forever. And he promises to give them that which they cannot see. That which has been hidden is now revealed to them. And secondly, he promises to give them a new beginning, which is a new name. Whenever you look in the Bible, whenever someone is given a new name, it's because they have a new beginning. Abram to Abraham. Jacob to Israel. Um, Simon to Peter. A new beginning, a fresh start. Who he wants a fresh start? Who he wants a new beginning. For those that are in a spiritual mess, Jesus says, I can fix it up. I can fix you up and I can give you a new beginning. But notice that the truth comes before the new beginning. Jesus says, here's my word, fall on the rock and be broken. And a new beginning is yours. A name which no one will know but you. Because it's your experience. And no one can have the experience that you have but you. So this is the church at Pergamos. A church which had spiritually compromised itself, but a church that was still able to be reached by God. That should speak volumes to you. The second church I want to have a look at today is the church of Thyatira. Jump down with me to verse 18. It says, And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than a first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. 
I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, that sounds pretty intense. Anyone, as we're reading that, think that that was a bit intense? It needed to be intense. Because this phase of church history was the most intense. This phase in church history was the most corrupt. You know, here's a picture. If you can see it up on the screen, probably this screen a bit better because it's, it's clearer. Can you see that little house on the side of that cliff? Just here? Does that, everyone see that? That's a, that's a house from a group of people called the Waldensies. Has anyone heard of that group of people? A group of Christians during this time in church history between 500 and 1500 AD who were faithful to the truth of God's word. Now, I've been in the process of building a home and I've had to put up retaining walls. There are no retaining walls there. And I would hate to see how high that retaining wall would have to be. But it's lasted there for years. Just as their faith that has passed down through the ages. So what had happened, church, for... For this period of time, the church had become institutionalized in the sense that it was combined with the state, which means church and state were united. And if the church didn't agree with something that someone was doing, then it had the armies and it had the political arm that it could execute its order against those people. The Waldensies were one of those groups of people. They were faith, they had biblical fidelity, they loved the word, they loved Jesus, and they would study it, and they would call out sin by its right name. They would, in the, in the mountains, these are the, the Alps in between France and Italy, they would have up in the mountains, the high mountains, little training schools, little homes, little churches, which they would come together and they would study the word of God. They'd go to Matthew in the group and say, I want you to memorize the book of Matthew. They'd go to Mark and say, I want you to memorize Mark. And same for Luke and same for John until the whole New Testament was memorized by individuals throughout the group. And if I was there, I was hoping I got the book of Third John. And they would take that which they knew and they would leave the mountains because they weren't exclusive and they didn't hold themselves apart from the world. But they went down to where the people were and they evangelized and they shared the goodness of Jesus. But the church didn't like it. The institutional church didn't like it. So they pursued her. They pursued this group of people because they were sharing scripture in the common vernacular. The Bible was outlawed. You couldn't read it publicly. You couldn't have it in the common language either. And these people were sharing the rays of light which has been hidden for so long. And the church came after them and killed them. They pursued them back to the mountains. But the thing with the mountains is the mountains were so high up and they were so well enclosed and so well guarded by the natural fortifications that God had provided that as the Roman armies uh, came and it tried to get them, the fog would then settle and they would lose the scent. For years and years this had happened as God's message was going forward, but then eventually they were found up in a cave on the top, on the very borders of a great cliff face. And they found them and they threw them off, men, women, and children, every one of them. Until Oliver Cromwell, who was the Prime Minister of England, sent a scathing letter of rebuke to those who had participated in this. I mean, you can't tell me that this doesn't matter. I mean, you can't tell me that we should not know this stuff. People have died for this, guys. 
people have surrendered their lives and their blood has been shed so we can have the word of God today. And I tell you what, when they were preaching back then, they were a lot more full with what they were presenting than what I am today. A lot more forward. I mean, if your life was at stake, you have two options. You compromise, you yield, you fold, or you declare what is right because it is right and you leave the consequences with God. When Jesus comes to this church, he comes to this church in verse 18 as he who is the son of God. The whole entire book of the Revelation, you see Jesus coming as many different things. He comes as a lamb. He comes as the son of man. He comes as a faithful witness. He comes as the resurrection and the life, etc., etc. There is only one time he comes as the son of God, and it's here. And the question I want to ask you this morning, if it's still morning, is this. Why does he come as the son of God? And I believe the answer is this. Because there's only one real Christ. And the period of time in which we're looking at here, which Jesus is addressing, is a church that had Antichrist. And Jesus is saying there is only one real Jesus. There is only one real Christ. Everything else are imitations. You know, I went to Bali in 2011. And as I was in Bali, you walk down the street and there's all these stalls along the side of the street and they're selling things. And I walked past this particular store and I looked at the store and the person was um, pestering me a little bit to come and have a look at what he had. So I went over to the stall and I'm looking at what he had and he had all these watches. I'm like, what kind of watches do you have? And he's like, Rolex watches. I'm like, oh, are they real? Are they authentic Rolex watches? Guess what he said? Yes, yes, yes. Very, very good, authentic Rolex watches. I said, how much? And I'll do the currency conversion for you. About like $4. For a Rolex watch, wow, bargain. Is that what I thought? I might get 10 of those and sell them when I'm back in Australia. Is that what I was thinking? No, I was thinking, man, these are fake. And he proceeded to tell me how he got them from Europe or something like that. And I'm just like, "Mm, okay. So I bought one of them just for laughs. It lasted like two days, and then the band broke. Rolex watch. Everything else was an imitation. There is only one authentic. Jesus is addressing himself as the Christ, the only Son of God. Everything else is an imitation. And it can't match who he is, and it can't match what he can do for you. And in this church, for a thousand years, the deepest, darkest period in church history, Jesus was obscured from the people. And he comes and he says, I am the Son of God. Antichrist is not me. Antichrist has misrepresented me. But I am he who is faithful. Jesus got lost in it all. But he declares who he is. And he talks to this church and he gives it. The instruction, and look at what he says. He says, your problem is this. Your problem is corruption because you allow Jezebel. You give her permission. And notice how this distraction, notice how this problem isn't happening outside of the church of God. But where is it happening? It's happening inside the church of God because you allow her in your midst. You allow that woman Jezebel. Look at this. Look at the comparison with Jezebel and Antichrist. 
just to give you a bit of a rundown on the history of Jezebel, Jezebel was a wicked queen in the history of Israel. Her father was a prophet of Baal, and she was a priestess to Baal, and she married the king of Israel, and she brought her whole entire paraphernalia into the nation of Israel and established it and corrupted it. Look at this. Jezebel controlled the king, King Ahab. She was kind of like this. She was the queen, and she kind of had King Ahab bridled up, and she was like just like riding him like a horse. Now, if you know the book of Revelation, then you can kind of get that imagery just there. A woman riding... A beast. Keep that in for another study, another day. She controlled the king. Antichrist controlled the church and the state. Jezebel led Israel to apostasy. Antichrist led the church to apostasy. Jezebel killed God's people. Antichrist killed God's people. Jezebel introduced idol worship. Antichrist introduced idol worship. Look at this one. There was 1,260 days of drought in the land. Antichrist ruled for 1,260 years. It was a spiritual drought. Jezebel attacked God's people who were hidden in caves. God's people are hidden in the wilderness. God comes out and says, Jezebel is in your midst and you allowed Jezebel. How amazing is scripture, guys? How amazing is the book of Revelation? It's crazy. It's crazy good. Not crazy bad. Open with me to First Kings for a second here. And we're almost finished, guys. First Kings chapter twenty-one. You know, when I started reading the Bible, I actually started this is just a little side note. I actually started in the book of Kings and I loved it. I know, maybe it's just the boy thing, but it was awesome. Okay, so First Kings chapter 21, verses 25 to 26. Look at this. It summarizes the history of Ahab and Jezebel as they worked together. It says, But there was none like Ahab, we're reading in verse 25, chapter 21, who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. She's the one that ran the kingdom. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done. And we'll just stop just there. And this was allowed in the history of Israel. And this was allowed in the history of God's church, just as God told. But the question I want to lay before you this morning is this. And it's an important one. Is God able to redeem? Is God able to save? Is God able to deliver someone not just from compromise, but is he able to deliver somebody from corruption? What do we think? Is the Lord's arm shortened that it cannot save? No. God can save the worst of sinners in the worst of places. He saved me. And he can save you. And the thing is, when God saves, the question I want to ask you is, how does he save? What is the only way that God has saved throughout the history of the ages? Peter said it well. There is only one name under heaven by which we may be saved. And whose name is that? Jesus 
Christ. Look what Jesus says to his church in Revelation because this is how he saves his church in corruption. Oh, this is lovely. I just found some food in my Bible. Oh, I shouldn't eat and read the Bible. I think it's a bit of sourdough bread. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit sour. Okay, so jump with me down to verse 24. Look at this. This is beautiful. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. You know, so he says, hold fast of what you do have because you don't have much because it's being obscured. But what you do know, hold on to it. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, I, to him I will give power over the nations. In other words, you are under dominion, authority, and persecution now, but it won't be everlasting. Look forward to the time where that is reversed and you're given that. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And this is it just here. This is where it gets beautiful. And I will give him the what? Who is the morning star? On the screen it says, I am the root. This is Jesus. These are red words. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. When all that was in the church was Antichrist and Jesus was missing, the only answer that the church needed and the only answer the church has ever needed is Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm not giving you any other promise, but I am giving you myself. Which tells me something beautiful. Even in the midst of corruption, God can save and he saves through his name and he saves through Jesus. Jesus has always been the answer, and Jesus will always be the answer. You know, I love it when I do Bible studies with kids. I just love it. And I'm studying with them, and sometimes they're not listening. I don't love that bit. And you ask the question which they're not listening. And they go to answer that question, and what answer would they always give you? Jesus. And it's usually always right, isn't it? You know, I wish that in my life I was so ready to say Jesus to my problems. Whatever that problem was. Instead of trying to figure it out myself, I wish that at times I would throw my hands in the air and say, Jesus, you are the only answer that I need. We've been looking at two phases of church history where Jesus wasn't the answer, sadly. And it led them to the place that they were. But Jesus never ceased to be the answer, even though they were where they were. The promise is always Jesus. What have we learned today, friends? Compromise will always lead to corruption. And corruption will always lead to death. Always. But I'm not going to finish my sermon with that. The Bible always points us to Jesus. And Jesus is always enough. He's always enough. He's always been enough for you. And he's always been enough for every single person who has ever lived. Jesus is the answer to the life's question. This is the monopoly that the church has that the rest of the world has no idea. We get into this vicious cycle of worldliness where we're looking for happiness, pursuit, goals, you know, fulfillment. It's miserable, guys. 
Jesus is enough. Is he enough for you? For all the spiritual blessings that are ours through Jesus. That wherever we are, or wherever we think we are, whether compromising or even in the pit of corruption, we want to thank you that Jesus is the answer. That is the outstretched arm that can reach down to the bottom of the deepest pit and draw us up to give us the water that will stop that deep thirst. Father, we want to thank you that you are all that we need. May we stop looking in empty places, in all the wrong places, for all the wrong things. And may be Jesus and Jesus only. May we take the words of scripture that you have spoken to your church in times past as relevant and pressing to us today. And may we take Jesus with us all the days of our life. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. One of the first things your parents teach you is please and thank you. More than likely, it's one of the first things you taught or will teach your children. And why is that? The world will still turn if you don't acknowledge the kindness of others, but recognizing that you've been blessed or benefited is good for you. It staves off a sense of entitlement, and it's you acknowledging where your blessings have come from. Listen to 2 Chronicles 32:25. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received, because his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. It's important to turn in God's direction and thank God for his goodness. It helps us keep in right relation to God, recognizing God as the giver of all good gifts. When God has blessed you, don't forget thanks. We've got a lot to be thankful for. I'm John Bradshaw for It Is Written. Let's live today by every word.
I've been traveling for Jesus so much of my life. I've been traveling on land and on sea. But I'm counting on taking a trip to the sky. That will be the last move for me. Up to heaven on high What a wonderful trip that will be I'm all ready to go Washed in Calvary's blow That will be the last move for me Here I'm bothered with packing each time that I move And I carry a load in each hand But I'll not need one thing that I've used in this world When I move to my heavenly
That will be the last move for me. That was Last Move for Me, sung by Danny Shelton. And before that, In the Garden from Classical Orchestral Hymns, Volume 1. Coming up next, A Mighty Fortress by Fountain View Academy. <laughs> 